If you have your Bibles, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to deal with what I call the Thessalonian triad, and they are three virtues that are the natural consequence of the gospel of God. Now, if you don't know where Thessalonians is, you can think of your Bible this way. You've got your four gospels, you have your book of Acts, and then Paul's letters start from uh, the longest to the shortest. And you know that Thessalonians is one of the shortest of Paul's letters, so you flip all the way back towards the end of those, and then Thessalonians comes alphabetically before Timothy, and that's where you find them. Not too many preachers preach on Thessalonians, but boy, they are dynamite books, dynamite letters. First Thessalonians is thought to be the very first letter that Paul wrote constituting scripture of the New Testament or his epistles of the New Testament. So let's read. I'm going to read from the Revised Standard Version, starting with verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, verse 3. Remembering before God and Father, our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a couple things to bring out in verse 3 says, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God, our God and Father, and then he goes into this triad. So Paul is constantly bringing up before God the Thessalonians in prayer, and he reminds God of this triad, the work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of faith. These virtues are the natural consequence of the gospel of God. Now, I don't want you to turn to these verses, but let me bring out some other verses about this triad to you. Faith, love, and hope. Of course, everybody's familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So faith, hope, love, abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. But we see it uh, in some other uh, verses, we see it in Galatians 5. Paul writes this, For through the Spirit, by faith, we, we wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. So you have the triad there. Now you go back to... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and Paul writes this, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see that these three are the natural consequence of the gospel, not only of the preaching of the gospel, but the body of Christ embodying the gospel. You see, the Thessalonians had the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. God is a God of faith, love, and hope, 
and he creates a people who embody these same virtues. Now, with this triad, we're going to flesh these out through Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. But what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit of background so you know where Paul is coming from. Thessalonica was the capital of a region called Macedonia, and it was a port city. In my mind, I'm Texan, it was a port city similar to Galveston or along the Gulf, because it looks to be, from what Paul says, more of a blue-collar town. Now, when you go back to the book of Acts, the reason why Paul came to Thessalonica, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, is he has a vision. Let me read the account of the vision. In Acts 16, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And Luke writes this. It's kind of funny. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering or concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel unto them. So, you know, they say, well, okay, you had a vision, Paul, so let's go ahead and go into Macedonia. Now, They didn't go into Thessalonica first. They went into Philippi before Thessalonica. And if you read the account of Philippi, they preached the gospel there. And then Paul and Silas were dragged into the public square, and they were beaten at Philippi. Not only beaten and whipped, but they were thrown into the inner jail, or the dungeon, as I would call it. And uh, an earthquake came. They were finally released. And uh, then they were told to get out of town because they told the magistrates there, said, hey, you beat some Roman citizens. And the magistrates got fearful of what would occur for the beating of Roman citizens. And uh, they got Paul and Silas out of town. So Paul and Silas, they leave Philippi. They go through a couple other cities and they come to Thessalonica. Now, let me read the account of them coming to Thessalonica, so you have an understanding of the background of this epistle or this letter. Starting in Acts 17, Paul, Luke writes this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, I don't know if I pronounced those right, they came to Thessalonica where Uh, was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Paul had a custom of You know, he has this Jewish background. He's called to the Gentiles, but he would go into cities, and the first place he would go would be into the synagogues. And he would preach that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. Now, it says in verse 4, And some of them believed and consorted with, or threw their lot in, with Paul and Silas, 
And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Now, when you read Thessalonians, you get the idea that Paul did this. He would go into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he would contend that Jesus was the Messiah. But he didn't have a 501c3. He didn't have a professional ministry corporation. In fact, what he testifies to is that he and his uh, fellow workers supported themselves with their own money. So what he would do is Sunday through, uh, Sunday through Friday, he would work with his hands. You know, his custom was leather crafting or tent making. So you see with verse 4 that, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, the context is that Paul would preach the gospel to whomever he was working with during the week, and then he would go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, in verse 5, this is where it starts to get ugly for Paul. He said, But the Jews which believed not, which would be the majority, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. It's kind of funny. And gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come here also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, seeing that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, and when they had taken security or bail of Jason and of the others, they let them go. And then verse 10, it says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither, or coming there, went into the synagogue of the Jews. So the background here is that the multitude, or the majority of the Jews, got some uh, what one translation says, ruffians, you know, of the baser sort, stirred up the city against Paul and Silas. And also, we're going to find out the believing Thessalonians. Now, one of the things that they did, or, and you see this in other accounts, is they would, uh, they would invoke Caesar because Paul would preach that Jesus is Lord and what would the Jews do? They would say, well, there's no, there's no Lord but Caesar. And uh, that would resonate with the Greeks too, who were idol worshipers, but who also respected Rome. So, let's get into verse 3, like I said, of the triad. Now, one thing I want to point out is this. Paul, because you don't hear it very often, is a spirit-filled preacher. You go back to Acts 9, when, when he received the vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, go into the city and you'll be told what to do. When Paul was in the city and he was praying, a man named Ananias, a disciple, came over and laid hands on him, and he said, receive ye, you know, he didn't speak old English, but he said, receive ye the Holy Ghost, 
receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we know from Paul's other letters that he spoke in tongues. He had the evidence of speaking in other tongues. He was a spirit-filled preacher. And that becomes important when we see the context of this epistle to the Thessalonians. In fact, let me, uh, let me read this to you. Starting in verse 4 from where we're reading, Paul writes this, Knowing, brethren, beloved brethren, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, which happens a lot these days, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance or full conviction. He was a spirit-filled preacher, and he says that his preaching came not in word only, but also in power and of the Holy Spirit. And actually, that mimics, that echoes Acts 10.38, where Jesus was baptized in what? In power and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now, the interesting thing is this. The Thessalonians, listen to what the account is, their testimony is, of the preaching of the gospel. Paul writes this in verse 13 in chapter 2, For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you heard our preaching, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually works also in you that believe. Now, let's stop there a minute and think about it. One, they received the gospel not as the word of man or just another preacher. Now, think about that in the context of today's preaching. Because today's preaching, we go back to Corinthians where it's like, well, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Jesus. I mean, that's how Christians think these days. The Thessalonians didn't. They received the preaching as the very word of God itself. And Paul says, and the word of God, which is at work in you believers, or works effectually in you believers, that's by the work of the Spirit. The believing of the gospel is not an intellectual exercise only. It is a spiritual exercise, and we're going to see that in this triad. Now, Going back to verse 3, going with the King James now, it says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience or steadfastness of hope. Let's center on this work of faith. A lot of times in preaching, you, you have the idea or you get the idea that works and faith are diametrically opposed to one another. But that is not the way that it is put in the body of Christ. Works are the outworking or the manifestation of the faith. Now, question is, what is faith? You have uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, which everybody quotes, but I suggest that the, and we'll get to Hebrews 1 in a second, but the definition of faith, <clears throat> pistis in the Greek is a very big word. And it's got a lot of uh, it's got a lot of contours. It's got it's a it's a it's a big word when it comes to meaning. Some of the best meaning is faithfulness. In fact, 
I think here the better meaning or the rendition, the translation of faith is believing allegiance. Now let me show you how that works even with Hebrews 11.1. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. First of all, faith is not mental assent. It is not nodding your head in church. It is not checking off a box or anything like that. Now, let's put in believing allegiance for the word faith. It said, now believing allegiance is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that's actually consistent. Why? Because God is invisible and spiritual things are invisible. But believing allegiance is believing those things to be true, believing those things to be right, believing those things to exist, and then acting on those beliefs. Believing allegiance. So we go back to 1 Thessalonians. Remembering without ceasing your work of believing allegiance. And you're going to see how this works in Paul's letter. The first thing, first thing is affliction, opposition, or persecution. Listen to what Paul writes in chapter 2. He says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance or our welcome in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, in Philippi. Going back to Philippi. But he says this, We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention or much opposition or much persecution. That is believing allegiance. Take a look at Paul. Take a look at Silas and Timothy. Paul and Silas are over in, in Philippi, and they start preaching the gospel, and they get beaten for it and thrown into prison. Once they're released, they, they, they come and make their way to uh, Thessalonica. And what do they do? They go straight to the synagogue and start preaching again. Believing allegiance. Amen. Believing the spiritual truths of the gospel and preaching those truths in the face of great opposition. Now, this is where it gets cool with the Thessalonians. In... Uh, Verse 6 on chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says, And you became followers of us. In the Greek, the word followers is imitators. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. That's the work of faith. That is the work of believing allegiance. Look at this. You became followers of us. Well, who's us? Paul and Silas, Timothy. Doing what? They're preaching the gospel in the midst of opposition. And Paul even goes so far and says, and you became imitators of the Lord. Wow. Think back to the Lord. He was persecuted, what? Doing the will of God. Being true to what the Father's will was, and the Father is invisible. Spiritual things. The gospel. They became imitators of the Lord. And so he says, having received the word, 
having received the preaching as the very word of God in much affliction or persecution in the Holy Ghost. And there's the Spirit. They became Spirit-filled believers in the midst of the persecution. Now, this persecution, where did it come from? Well, in preaching today, there's this line of thought, and, and it's, not, it's not scriptural, that God, um, you know, God's sovereign, and through His sovereignty and Him knowing everything going on, His omniscience, that actually persecution ultimately comes from Him because, why? Because He wants to test the faith of His children or something like that. That is not borne out in Scripture. Let's take a look. Paul says here in verse 14 that the persecution came from their own countrymen. That means that they came from fellow Thessalonians, the idol worshipers, those outside of the commonwealth of Israel, the Greeks. Now, it doesn't take too much imagination to know what this persecution was or what kind of form it took. Because when you look back over to Greek society back then, there were idols everywhere. They were infused in the culture. You know, I mean, these days you go on a Caribbean cruise or something and people pick up all these little kind of statuettes and they put them on their mantle and stuff. No, it's not, nothing like that. Here people worship gods and they worship gods for certain reasons. And it was all throughout the culture. You had blacksmiths who made statues, who made jewelry, you know, jewelry makers and all of that. It was social. People would have weddings and go to temples, have weddings and temples of their various gods and all of that. The thing is, the Greeks, they had many gods, but they weren't exclusive. So you could have, you know, you could have people going to their temple on Thursday and you could have people down the block going to another temple on Friday and some other people going to another temple on Saturday. They all got along because they were all non-exclusive. You know, you worship this God, we worship this God. Hey, everybody's cool. Let's go meet at the country club. But you see, when the gospel came, the gospel is exclusive. There is one Messiah. There is one Savior. There's one way to be reconciled to God and it's exclusive. There's no other way to do it. Well, that causes problems in relationships. That causes problems with friends and families and business relationships and business itself. And that's why you have the Jews brought in the ruffians, brought in the, the Basha crowd to create an uproar in the city. Because if Thessalonians become believers, then that's going to affect the temple worship that's going to affect the, the social uh, culture of the city. It's going to affect everything. That's why they said, oh, the guys that have turned the world upside down, they've come here too, meaning they're coming to disrupt the whole social order of our city. We need to get them out. And you know, with the Thessalonians, that's the kind of persecution they were dealing with. Oh, you're becoming a believer. You're becoming exclusive, which means that you are what? You are separating yourselves from us, from your very family, from your business, from your friends. 
that would cause a huge uproar. And that's the kind of persecution that was coming against the new believing Thessalonians. Now, the persecution was not just mental or intellectual. That's the outworking of the persecution. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians verse 4. And I want you to see this, and this is in Paul's letter. So we see a little bit more about where the persecution comes from. For he says this, For truly, when we were with you, we told you that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. He's talking about the persecution he, uh, he and Silas and Timothy got for preaching the gospel. And then... Uh, verse 5, let me set verse 5 up for you. We read that um, at night, the Thessalonian believers got Paul and Silas out of the city, and uh, Paul and Silas went down to Berea. Well, eventually, Paul and Silas made it down to Athens. And Paul, thinking about the Thessalonians and the persecution and what had gone on there, he was curious. He had some anxiety about what happened to those believers after we left. So what he did is he sent Timothy back to investigate. He sent Timothy back to report on them and how they were doing in the faith. And so he says in verse 5, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, when I could no longer bear it, I sent Timothy, basically, I sent to know your faith or your believing allegiance, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. Now notice what he says there, the tempter have tempted you. One translation or one, one uh, translation of tempter is seducer, that the seducer has seduced you. When you go back to Matthew 4.3, Matthew uses the same term to describe the devil in the wilderness, the tempter. So we see here by this verse that the persecution might have physically, you know, on the ground come from uh, the Thessalonians' fellow countrymen, fellow Greeks. You can see that they were animated spiritually by the tempter. And that's consistent with what we see in Ephesians 2, because there Paul writes about the prince of the power of the air and how he animates the sons of unbelief. So we see that persecution has a spiritual origin to it. They turned aside from idols to live to serve the living and true God and to wait for Jesus to come in what? Well, the persecution comes. Now, <clears throat> Paul lays out in the letter two reasons for the persecution. And he gives you a, a good idea about the preaching of the gospel and the embodying of the gospel. And, and why persecution comes. One, he says in uh, chapter 2, let me read it. He's speaking about the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus 
and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. But then he says this. In verse 16, he says, By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So that's one reason for persecution, to try to stop the preaching of the gospel so that men may be saved. And then there's a second reason, and that's in uh, chapter 3, verse 3. Paul writes this, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Now let's break that down a minute. That no man should be moved or shaken by these afflictions. So one reason for persecution is the stopping of the gospel to get people saved. The second reason for persecution is what? Is to shake those who are in the faith so that they'll deny the the faith, so that they'll shrink back from the faith. So their believing allegiance will come to nothing. Now, what people, uh, what preachers do is they take that last part of the verse, for you yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto, to try to say that uh, persecution is divinely appointed. Well, in the context, it's this. In context is there's going to be opposition to the gospel, and there's going to be opposition to people who embody the gospel. And that is what Paul is talking about. And the opposition comes from not from God. No, he wants growth in the gospel. It comes from unbelievers who are animated spiritually. That's where the persecution comes from. So we see here with the first prong of the triad, that is, it is believing allegiance in the midst of opposition, in the midst of the unbelievers, In the midst of a world in an evil age, it is believing allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of God. Amen. So let's go to the second prong of the triad. And that is the labor of love. If you have your Bibles open, turn over to chapter 4 and let's read verses 8 through 9. Actually, just verse 9. Paul writes there, But as touching brotherly love, ye need not, or ye need not, that I write unto you. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Now, this is real interesting here because what, what, when you go back to the Greek, you see that there is a compound word that's that means God taught. What Paul has done is taken the word God and, and taught and put them together as a compound. So what he's saying is, for you yourselves are God taught to love one another. How would that come about? I mean, he didn't leave them a list of, well, these are things to do in order to walk in love. He said that comes from the Spirit. You have a Spirit-filled preacher preaching a spirit-filled gospel to believers who become spirit-filled and then led by the Spirit to love one another. Now, this loving of one another is not the kind of hallmark love that you see around in the world. 
It is a self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Remember that Paul said, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So here he says, well, we don't have to write to you about loving one another. So, you know, for us readers, we would kind of like him to spell it out a little bit so we would know, but he does spell it out by his own example and the example of the Lord. Because when you go back to Paul, you see the kind of love that embodies the gospel. You see a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You see a Pharisee who excelled, who excelled past his peers, who was persecuting the church, trying to destroy the church, and he meets the Lord on the road to Damascus. And then what happens? Well, you see it in Philippi. He's preaching the gospel in Philippi, supporting himself with a blue-collar trade. He gets beaten for the preaching of the gospel. He gets thrown in jail for the preaching of the gospel. A lot of people would have given up at that time. A lot of people would have said, you know what? I had a vision of a man from Macedonia who said to come help us, and this is the kind of thing I get. I get thrown into prison. I've got scars all over my back. I've been beaten to a pulp. So you know what? I'm going to go back to my nice house. I'm going to go back to my nice room and my nice life. And you know what? I'm going to just write some letters and just send them out, you know, while I'm playing Bible music on my radio. No. After Philippi, he makes his way to Thessalonica, and he does the very same thing. He goes right to the synagogue and repeats the same thing over again. Why? Because he wants to get the gospel to the world. He wants to get the gospel to those who are worshiping idols in Thessalonica. His self-sacrifice. That is the kind of love that the church embodies, that the gospel embodies. And he says to the Thessalonians, when I was with you, I acted as a nursing mother. I also acted as a loving father. So he expects them to be doing the same, and in fact, they are doing the same after hearing Paul for three weeks, just three weeks. He also said to them that he not only preached the gospel to them, but he shared his own soul with them as well. That's embodying the gospel. That is the labor of love. Now, Paul said, you became not only imitators of me, but also of the Lord. That's quite the proposition, isn't it? But listen to what Paul writes in Philippians. He says this, who, being in the form of God, this is Jesus, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, or did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. In the Greek, it's he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's embodying the gospel, isn't it? Paul writes that Jesus didn't live unto himself. And the thing is, the gospel produces people 
who do not live unto themselves. And we see that here in Thessalonians. And you know, it doesn't take that much to understand what Paul is saying. They're under persecution. So what are they doing? They're taking care of each other. They're loving each other in self-sacrificing ways as led by the Spirit. They're not sending Hallmark cards to one another. They're actually sacrificing themselves for each other. Amen. That is the labor of love, and that is reflective of our gospel, and that is reflective of the body of Christ. The last portion of the triad is the patience of hope or the steadfastness of hope. What does that have to do with anything? Well, Christians have a hope that the world doesn't have, that nobody else has, and that is the coming back of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our bodies. Nobody else has such a hope like that. Listen to this in verse 10, chapter 1. And he says, And to wait or to await for the Son, his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. As believers, we know that there is a wrath coming because it's outlined in Scripture. We know that there is going to be a consummation of the age. We know that when we are uh, absent from the body, that we are present with the Lord, but there is the ultimate, there is the ultimate uh, salvation of the resurrection of the body. We have received a deposit of the Spirit now, but we look forward to the coming back of the Lord and the resurrection of our bodies. Those who are outside the gospel don't have any such hope. They've got no hope whatsoever. In fact, let me... Um, Let's do this. Let's go over to chapter 4 because I want you to see the contrast that Paul writes to the Thessalonians between believers and unbelievers when it comes to hope. He writes this, and let me give you a little bit of context. Paul and Silas leave the city, and there's persecution that continues. Now, we're not told explicitly, but the context tells us or implies to us that the persecution got so bad that some might have died. Some Thessalonians might have died for the gospel. And we get that from verses 13 and 14, because what Paul does here is that he assures them about those who have died in Christ. And the reason why, the reason why you think, well, uh, some might have died in the persecution is because there weren't any believers in Thessalonica before Paul and Silas got there. And then Paul writes a letter saying, oh, well, those who died in Christ, guess what happens with them? So that's the context of these verses. And in verse 13, he writes, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep or those who have died that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now let's flesh that out a minute. You see that Paul says this. He says, I understand that those about those have, who have died in Christ, he said, don't grieve for them the same way as those who have no hope. So even though we might grieve for their absence, we know that we're going to see them again because he says that in the very next verse. For since for, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him or bring with Christ. But notice what he says about those who don't believe. He says that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope or that you may not grieve as others who do not have Hope. Idol worshipers don't have any hope. Those outside the gospel don't have any hope. So the church believers embody a future hope of Jesus' return to the planet. That is part of the virtue of being the Christian, of being part of the body of Christ. Now, uh, let me turn over to Ephesians 2 for you about unbelievers. And this is unbelievers no matter what kind of unbelievers they are. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 2.12. He says, that At that time you were without Christ, talking to the Ephesian believers about the time before they were born again and spirit-filled being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. And he says, And strangers from the covenants of promise, listen to this, having no hope and without God in the world. So unbelievers have no hope. And you can see why this would cause persecution for the Thessalonian believers. You know, you, you have some that get born again, and what? They explain their faith to their family and friends, and then they hit upon this. Well, we have a hope. This Jesus is coming back, and he delivers us from the wrath to come. And you can see friends and family pulling out their hair saying, "What you know, what you're saying that we're going to suffer wrath because we're worshiping other gods? Are you kidding? I said, no, I'm not kidding. And you could see that people get riled up and how the persecution would come. Because people do not want to be told the truth. John writes to us and says that men love the darkness. That was true then, and it's also true today. Amen. And that's one tough thing about preaching the gospel, because men love darkness, even though you're preaching light to them. Amen. So they will work spiritually, being animated spiritually, to try to shake the faith and also prevent the gospel from being preached. Amen. Because they want to be comfortable with themselves. They don't want to hear about the wrath to come. They don't want to hear about self-sacrificing love. And they don't want to hear about believing allegiance. Amen. So going back to verse 3, now we understand what the work of faith is, the labor of love is. 
and the steadfastness of hope, and how these three virtues mark the body of Christ. They embody the gospel for the believer. Amen. They make us strong believers, stout believers. It's how we go about our lives, awaiting his entrance back to the earth. Amen. So let me close with this. Let me close with a benediction that comes actually out of 1 Thessalonians. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calls you who will also do it. And he will do this through his spirit.